Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahe. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another episode of our incredible show. Uh, I get the incredible pleasure to speak to leaders from around the world. Leaders who've been tried and tested in their environment and we're operating or are operating at the very top end of the game. These are incredible leaders who understand the power of emotional intelligence in practice. Uh, But today I've not had to travel across the world. Today, my guest is literally about one and a half miles away from where I live, which is just incredible. So we're meeting up later on this week. We've never met before. So we're meeting up later on this week for a cup of green tea, which is my hot drink of choice. Uh, But today I thought we'd have a really good conversation because this guy knows his stuff and has practiced it, learned it and honed his craft over many, many years. He spent 21 years at Rolls-Royce. Uh, You may know that uh, my city, Derby, in the United Kingdom, is the home of Rolls-Royce. And uh, he started off as a summer trainee, and he often says that uh, had he not been a summer trainee, he might not have got a job there. But he went on to do incredible things in Rolls-Royce. He went from managing teams of six people to being in a position where he had to influence a whole engineering team of 15,000 people. I mean, that's just incredible, isn't it? But one thing that he's always told throughout all of his leadership journey is that you are too nice. Now, I've heard that being said by one other leader that I really admire in the world, and that's Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, who was often told that she's too nice. And look what she's doing now. She's reshaping the the way global political leaders should be operating and are seen in the world. So I want to welcome today, who knows, he could be the next prime minister, Keith Howells. Keith, good to have you on the show. <laughs> Thanks very much. That's quite an introduction, <laughs> quite a comparator. Keith, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, it really is a, a, a wonderful pleasure to have you here. I'm looking forward to meeting up in person. Uh, when I heard that you worked at Rolls-Royce, which is obviously a, you know, an incredible organisation, a huge organisation, global, had to reach so many corners of the earth. And I know that you've not just worked in Derby, but you worked in Bristol uh, as well. Uh, what area of Rolls-Royce is it that operates in Bristol? Uh, the defence business mainly operates in Bristol. So, um, yeah, typically dealing with um, uh, the UK Ministry of Defence and uh, and then looking to sell some of its engines and services to other airlines around the world. But you've worked in all sorts of corners of Rolls-Royce. I mean, you started off as an engineer, but you went way beyond that. You did. You ventured into areas that you had little or no knowledge on. How did that happen? Yeah, that's largely been my leadership journey, I think. <laughs> 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 Leading or managing people who I, yeah. Who, who were awesome, but I, yeah, probably didn't know what they did. <laughs> How long have you been on the leadership journey? And, uh, you know, what was what were your early years like? 
It's certainly over 20 years now of uh, leadership in various guises, um, which has been awesome. And uh, every day I continue to learn more and more uh, about myself yeah. as well as others. So, uh, yeah, it all started for me um, um, following uh, my graduate placements in Rolls-Royce and uh, I sort of settled into my first job as an engineer. Uh, and then I had the opportunity to become a team leader. And um, throughout my whole career, really, I've sort of been attracted to jobs where I wasn't quite sure whether I knew how to do it or not. Um, something about me that likes the challenge of finding out. So the a job became available. Um, it felt really exciting in terms of where it could take it and uh yeah it was my first sort of people leadership position and I applied for it and uh I think before the interview and during the interview um we had a few conversations about being too nice to be a leader and could I really have some of those hard conversations um so yeah that was um that that was the start of my leadership journey and probably the start of uh uh, people questioning styles, really styles of leadership, and um, and almost equating styles with results. And so, what was a typical style around you in those days? If you were so different to other people, this was probably two thousand, two thousand and one, something like that. So, uh, yeah, many organisations, and and Ross at that point was no different. There was a particular way they describe leaders. Um, and you know probably not the right words but looking for strong confident charismatic certain you know hard direct focused on um delivery whatever that meant uh high energy um and there's sort of almost i wouldn't say a caricature but almost a definition of what a good leader looked like and um perhaps i was Probably a bit more introverted by nature, um, probably more interested in, like you said in the introduction, sort of emotional intelligence and more interested in what the team was able to do rather than any individual within yeah. it, maybe maybe socialist in outlook. So uh, probably uh, contravene some of the images of what a leader would have looked like or the definition of a leader. On that you day. see, that's so interesting. I mean, I'm listening to you now. Uh, and I'm almost envisaging looking at myself in the mirror because, you know, in the police service when I became a leader, uh, the way that you've described a typical leader was was exactly that. Very hard, very straight, very task-orientated. Uh, um, almost a, I don't know if you know the theory X, theory Y model of leadership and theory X leaders are uh, don't believe that uh, the people uh, necessarily want to, come to work to want to work, they are driven by the financial incentives. Whereas theory why leaders are your more transformational leaders that believe in trusting the, the individual, inspiring the individual to do better. And I think there's a lot of theory X leadership going on in that time. And I mean, I joined the police service in the 1980s. So you can just imagine it was even more so than, than what you experience in Rolls-Royce. But I think the landscape of of leadership is beginning to change. Organizations are beginning to understand that transformational, emotionally intelligent, human-centered leadership is far, far more important in the workplace and to get things done. What were your earliest lessons? If you had like an early lesson in your leadership journey, what would you say it was for you? God, that's a deep question, isn't it? The thing that became apparent to me very early on uh, and I didn't appreciate how significant it was at the time, but but it was this idea of transparency. 
So uh, I sort of remember back in the days where it almost felt like you had access to all kinds of privileged information as a leader that you may or may not choose to share with the teams. And that I, I always felt that makes it hard for people to exercise their discretion and make good decisions. In my mm. first leadership role, it's we sort of went from planning a glorious future to having to close the department and people losing their jobs. And and it became that sort of crystallized the need to become transparent for me. That was the sort of first key lesson because I kind of figured that people would need to make decisions on their personal future as to where they're going to invest their time and energy and if they had more information around them to do that. Even if it was changing continually, if I could be clear and transparent with them on what was happening, even if I didn't know what was going to happen next, then hopefully they could navigate uncertain waters. I love the whole concept of transparency and and almost demonstrating to everyone, look, hey, I don't have the monopoly on good ideas here, uh, and I am I am I happen to be the leader of this team, but that is the team operates as a, as a as a single entity, and we all have to play our part. I mean. I guess one of the, the the biggest lessons for me was that vulnerability is a strength, and it takes huge courage. And it particularly in that era, it did it takes huge courage to be a vulnerable person to show vulnerability. Uh, but I found it worked incredibly. I mean, when I didn't know something, I would say I don't know, uh, uh, but I had expertise within the team that would show me how. Uh, and they saw me as the person that had the hand on the tiller, so to speak, uh, but not necessarily having to be the expert. And you've been in this position, haven't you, where you've taken over a department and you had like almost zero knowledge of what they did. How did you handle that? <laughs> well, that's where I learned about the importance of sort of trust and respect almost and and humility. So um, it happened to be the department's uh, my second leadership job, actually, and I was sort of catapulted into this environment, and it was off the back of managing um, the closure of the previous department. So it, it didn't start from a good place because everyone was looking at me, going, um, "Aren't you the guy who just? <laughs> and what are you doing here?" Um, so that, coupled with not knowing very much about what the team did or how they did it, really put me on the back foot. And 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 I think that was the first point at which I I. I, I I had no choice really. I I had to. They knew I didn't know what they did, and I knew it. And so we may as well just um, deal with it, and then maybe talk about what it is that I could bring to the team. What yeah. what experiences I had that might be useful that perhaps they didn't have in the collective. And, and I think it was it it was through being honest around what it is I knew and didn't know. And that was absolutely alien to me as well because mm. be, because that culture at the time valued knowledge and specialism above all else, you know, and and particularly in um in an organization that prides itself on engineering excellence and we're talking about leading engineering teams who do incredible things, then the the technical knowledge and expertise was prized almost above all else. And and if you had to do some other stuff around 
managing people as it would have been characterized at that point in time then that was probably necessary but it wasn't where you know it wasn't where the key people were it wasn't top of the agenda yeah and and often when we talk about uh, you know anything to do with managing people or leading people it is often boxed up in that uh, that horrible compartment of soft skills uh, and I just think I get frustrated every time I hear this terminology of soft skills because I just believe that it's it's hardcore business skills, leadership, and knowing about how to inspire people, how to build trust, how to coalesce people to move towards a certain direction. These are incredible skills that every great leader should have. So therefore, they cannot be soft skills. Massively. And that, that's all organizations are, aren't they? All businesses are just collections of people that are being mobilized in a particular direction to achieve particular goals. So Absolutely. Um, and, and we're all irrational, <laughs> emotional beings um, <laughs> who all have our own stuff to deal with. And, and I just think the, the ability... I'm learning about it. I clearly don't have it nailed, but the, the the ability that great leaders I've seen and worked with have to mobilize teams and align them around a common goal, um, I just think is breathtaking. It is. When you see a visionary leader who has this innate ability and they almost do it as if it's a casual thing that they're doing, but it's incredible to watch them in action. And some of the most inspiring people that I've worked for have seemingly been so natural in this ability to inspire me. And some of the messages that I've taken away from them, I still hold dear today, and it's helped me in my leadership journey. Uh, I want to take you back to something that you said earlier on. You know, when you came into leadership, you, you said something about... Uh, I had to learn a lot about myself. Uh, and self-awareness is like the first quadrant when we talk about emotional intelligence. So what was it that you had to learn and how did you learn about yourself? How did you go deeper? It's a great question. I Yeah, I, I, I'm naturally quite reflective. So I, after many experiences, I'll, I'll naturally reflect on that and think, what is it that I did what is it that I could have done differently would have that have changed the outcome so I think there's quite a lot of that going on continually but I think one of the big shifts really was moving away from and I still struggle with this today moving away from feeling really accountable for everything and therefore trying to do everything to helping others do and enabling others to do knowing that in that way lies the path to more productivity, more happiness, more engagement, more teamwork. And and the sort of control freak in me um, that I have to continually manage even today yeah. is constantly looking to take stuff back and don't give that and I'll keep that. And um, I, I think that probably was one of the hardest lessons really was You've got to let go to receive. Uh, and it's also a d demonstrates that this is an ongoing journey. Uh, you know, you don't reform yourself and stay well forever, you know, in terms of your ability to delegate and trust people. There's this devil within us where we want to snatch back control when it doesn't seem to go our way. There is this desire with, and it's that that we have to fight to remain true and transformational leaders, isn't it? Yeah, and um, much as we like to turn up perfect every day in the world of work that's not how life is is it so it's um i very much see it as a as a a game of probabilities really one of you know can 
can I can I be on the right part of that spectrum more often than not, rather than I'm always perfect? Can I be right more than I'm wrong, knowing that I will be wrong on some occasions? Because as you say, we are never perfect, are we? So you've had this incredible career in Rolls-Royce and, uh, you know, there was that period in your life where you you're, you had a responsibility for influencing 15,000 people within the engineering environment of Rolls-Royce. I mean, goodness gracious, how on earth do you, do you influence 15,000 people? And I'm guessing engineers are very meticulous, very detail-oriented, <laughs> very task-oriented individuals, right? <laughs> Many of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe I was one once, I don't know, or maybe I wasn't. <laughs> it's such a challenge, isn't it? And um, I, yeah, I, who knows? <laughs> who knows if I ever made it? But I, I, I think I learned to, I, I sort of learned a lot along the way around the, the, the shadow that leaders cast and the power of alignment in leadership teams when you're talking about very large organizations geographically dispersed inevitably they have different priorities they're operating in different contexts and and the challenge i think became one of communication and alignment of direction recognizing that people can be in different places on a journey as long as that journey's moving towards something that is shared something that is common then people can take their own steps at their own pace recognizing where they are now that takes courage both of a leader and of an organization uh, and we talked earlier on didn't we about how some organizations uh, can almost play the tick box exercise because it takes a lot of courage to throw passion into cultural change uh, and creating the kind of culture that you know is the right culture to have in any organization. Uh, so consequently, we, we hide behind all sorts of uh, models or themes. For example, one of, the, one of the things that we talked about early on was uh, equity and diversity. So people talk about, lots of organizations talk about equality and diversity and inclusive, inclusive leadership, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't know, there's something inside me. Every time I hear EDI, there's something inside of me that says, well, actually that... EDI is, is an outcome uh, as opposed to a root of uh, your, your, the way that the organization operates. For me, it's about get your culture right. The EDI elements look after themselves. But the moment we start focusing on an EDI, it's, about, it, it's almost like putting sticking plasters over something. We never really get down to the root of it all. If leadership is about coalescing people towards a common objective, then surely that applies to the concept of equality, diversity, where everybody feels appreciated, heard. It's about cognitive diversity. It's about literally everybody that comes into that organisation, white, black, brown, female, male, whatever orientation, but every single person feels they offer and add value to the organisation and that they are heard and seen. I, I think that's right, and I think that's so massive. And it, it's such, um, such an emotive topic as well, isn't it? sort of mm. diversity and inclusion and depending on where you're coming at it from you, you can feel stronger about it than than others and and it's quite laden with language that can be quite incendiary and and I think yeah. and I think you've distilled it really nicely into what are the values that we're seeking to share 
how are we seeking to work together and if we can get those and they're fundamental human values i would argue more often than not you know you can distill most value proposition or value statements organizations have into things that as human beings we would fundamentally sign up to if they can be defined and lived then i think as long as there aren't systemic impediments to diversity and inclusion and sometimes there are but as long as there aren't then diversity and inclusion becomes an outcome of those things because the culture's right i think one of the dangers we see a lot of organizations chasing say recruitment targets uh, particularly around the race and ethnicity i mean that's basically chasing demographic diversity but does that change an organization what happens if you are targeting people all from the same area uh, and they so they think they're saying they they behave the same they've been to the same schools but they look different then surely that's not adding any cognitive diversity to your organization that is adding to the group think and the echo chambers that exist so it's 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 as you say it's a quite a deep area but actually the solutions i believe are quite simple it's uh, get your culture to where it needs to be um really believe and live out your values uh, and the values need to be, as you say, human values that are understandable, that are uh, translatable, uh, and and then hold people to account around those values. I, I think that's fundamental. That's easy to say and hard to do, isn't it? Because that requires a constancy of purpose and practice and mm. uh, and repetition that requires discipline, discipline over a period of time, and uh, and it's easier to fall back on targets and performance and process um because it just is there's not a lot of effort it takes effort as you say but and and it also takes courage because while ever you are going through that transition and sticking with values as opposed to your targets and particularly if you've got an external organization that uh, oversees your performance or measures your performance for example Her Majesty's Inspector of XYZ, uh, then there may be some nervousness about, well, the, the, you know, our performance might dip while ever we are getting into this new way of thinking. But eventually, I believe that it's going to increase and you'll have sustained improvement in performance. So it's that level of courage that senior leaders, CEOs, MDs uh, are having to make. Um, but I do believe that it's achievable. We put so much effort into driving performance anyway why not put that equal amount of effort into into creating the right culture that drives that performance of its own accord absolutely agree and i was just thinking back to what are some of the characteristics of leaders i've enjoyed working for and vision um which is what you just described as them needing faith you know we don't know that doing this will lead to that outcome but i'm investing faith in that and uh, and humility that we'd already talked about to recognize that could be wrong uh, i think those three characteristics if i reflect back on some great leaders i've worked for and with they they would define all of them actually i just want to touch on some of the areas that i know that you have a real good specialism in uh, that many organizations and I'm not saying these are bad areas because the, the, these are fundamentally important and they can drive the performance of the organization. 
but some organizations will focus in on process. Uh, so they'll try to be as efficient as they possibly can. And the danger with that is that you miss out on the people issues. You don't take people along on the journey with you. So you might introduce something like Six Sigma or lean thinking uh, into your organization. Uh, and you are still working in that environment now, but you add that uh, the additional element of the people within that, don't you? Do you want to just explain what it is that you do now? Yeah, no problem. I find it fascinating. <laughs> I think you're asking a, a, a Six Sigma black belt and lean agile consultant to to say that <laughs> all of that process methodology isn't isn't what's needed. It has a real place, but I think it's the application yeah. of that, isn't it? Fundamentally, but businesses don't change because we have good data or well-defined processes. They they're necessary often, but insufficient. It, it's about Businesses are collections of people, and what matters is what people do every day uh, and what they don't do. Uh, and processes and data should enable them to achieve great outcomes. They, they should be enablers, but it, it takes more than that, basically. So um, in our organization, Project 4 Learning Lab, we help others accelerate their speed of learning. Uh, and many, many people think, oh, okay, so you train people. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe. But we help them translate data into information, into decisions to take action, that get results, that give them new knowledge or learning that help inform what they do next. And if we can do that, if we can go through that cycle quickly and frequently, then the organization is going to learn faster, it's going to make better decisions, and it's going to achieve better outcomes and be more responsive and adaptable to change. And I, and I guess the last two years, if they've taught us anything, it, it, they've taught us the need to be responsive and adaptive in in what is a quite a chaotic world. Yeah, and I guess what the last two years have also shown us, and you know, things like the great resignation have definitely uh, proved a point on, is that you've got to put people at the very heart of everything. If you're not thinking about your people, if you're not taking people along on the journey with you, then no matter how efficient your processes are, people aren't necessarily going to work with those processes or, or drive them forward. So you also have the people element in, your, in, in the work that you do as well. It's all about the people, really. It's all about um, supporting and coaching them to evolve in, in what they do and um i think it's if you go back sort of hundreds of years to the concept of management where um it sort of spans from the industrial revolution and before actually you know you you can produce parts or bits you can count them you know when they're done you know what the work content is you can get a stopwatch out you can define exactly what the steps are if you repeat those steps whether you're highly skilled or unskilled if you repeat those steps then they'll lead to good product that is still true in some businesses not that many anymore because all of those jobs that had those characteristics have been replaced um so that's not even true now but the majority of jobs in the world are in the knowledge economy right so as we go into the digital age that's people are creating things they're having to use their discretion and their mind to determine what it is they need to do because maybe they haven't done it before or they haven't faced that situation before make decisions and hope that the actions that they take lead to the outcomes that are needed and i think in that world every 
concept of management that dates back to the Industrial Revolution and before becomes problematic. Mm-hmm. That that whole underpinning stuff becomes problematic, and it becomes much more about how we equip and enable people to make better decisions more often every day, and, and how we support them. Uh, in the organization to do that and how we give them the space and the safety to do that and i find that more fascinating really people are fascinating they are incredibly diverse and uh, we have all sorts of experiences individually and collectively in our lives and it shapes us and we evolve very quickly don't we um i I love how you have pulled together these almost clinical processes, these step-by-step efficiency processes that we often talk about when we talk, when we, when we consider things like lean or six sigma and they are very important process, but you've added the people element within that. And I think that's what adds strength to the work that project for lab is doing. Um, I think it's uh, incredible. So if people wanted to uh, connect with you or find out more about what you do, Keith, or maybe just follow you, where would be the best place for them to do that? LinkedIn's probably a good place. Project 4 Learning Lab on LinkedIn, or you can find me, Keith Owls, on LinkedIn, or you can go to our website and get it from there, which is www.p4learninglab.com. But I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Keith. Uh, I look forward to meeting up and hearing more about the great work that you do. And uh, and let's see if you can inspire even more people on your continuing leadership journey. Thank you very much. I've loved it. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content. And of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. Take care. Have a great day.